So then we will start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Samudasa Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Samudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa In my last talk, I started to explain the five aggregates. Remember the aggregate of materiality, the aggregate of feeling, the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of mental formations, and the aggregate of consciousness. And so what we call a being, a person, a man, a woman, or an animal, consists of these five aggregates, not more and not less. So these aggregates refer to physical and mental phenomena. One aggregate is materiality and the remaining four aggregates are, are mental phenomena. They pertain to the mind. And so in my last talk I basically spoke about the aggregate of materiality. Upakanda. And as we have seen, materiality, physical phenomena, matter, consists basically of what is called the four primary material elements. These elements are earth, water, fire, and air. But as we have seen, they are not real earth, water, fire, or air but they stand for certain properties or qualities that are very similar to these elements. Like the earth element stands for the properties of hardness and softness. The water stands for fluidity and cohesion. Fire stands for heat and cold. And the air element stands for movement, for motion, vibration, and support. And apart from these four primary material elements, we have derived material uh, phenomena. And these derived material phenomena can be compared to the trees, plants, and shrubs that grow on the earth. So the earth uh, would stand for the four primary material elements. And just to give you an idea, among these derived material phenomena are things such as color, or smell, or taste 
or nutriment. And so when we are observing the body, experiences in the body, then what we actually perceive or experience is just a variety of different sensations. There is heat, there is tension, there is tingling, there is an itchiness, there is pressure, there is cold, there is some taste, smell, and so on. And with the deepening of our meditation practice, we can come to a point where the form of our body, or the form of parts of our body, is no longer distinct. Sometimes we even completely lose the notion of body, or arm, or leg. And so then at that moment, what we experience is just some sensations, heat or cold, pressure, vibrations, and so on, and the mind that is aware of these sensations. So just these two things, sensations and the mind that knows these sensations. And so at such a time, then the meditator has moved away from um, conventional reality and has arrived at ultimate reality. And so the practice of vipassana meditation can also be described the practice that leads away from concepts, that moves away from seeing things in a conventional way in order to arrive at ultimate reality or see things as they really are, how they exist on an ultimate level. So now, tonight, let's have a look at the four aggregates that pertain to the mind. And these are the aggregates of feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. According to the Buddhist teachings, what we call mind, sometimes consciousness, actually consists two things, namely consciousness and mental factors. And to distinguish these two, consciousness is citta in Pali, and the mental factors are called citta-sikha in Pali. So when we very generally use the term the mind. So that actually ex- uh, consists of consciousness and mental factors, or consists of citta and citta-sikha. Now, this consciousness or citta 
never arises alone. It's always accompanied by some of these mental factors or jeta sikas. And of these mental factors, we have altogether 52 of these mental factors. And so, these mental factors, they arise dependent on the sense impression that enters through one of the six sense doors and also dependent on the present mental state of the person. But seven among these 52 mental factors, they arise with each moment of citta or consciousness. And feeling and perception are two among these seven mental factors that are present with each moment of consciousness. Because feeling and perception are very important, they form a category of aggregate by themselves. Therefore, we have the aggregate of feeling and we have the aggregate of perception. And all the remaining 50 mental factors, they are included in the aggregate of mental formations. So now let's go to the aggregate of feeling. And in Pali this is called Vedana Kanda. Feeling can be divided into three kinds. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. We also can call that neutral feeling. So feeling, or Vedana, only refers to the affective quality of a given experience. It is this mental factor of Vedana feeling which actually experiences the flavor of an object. And as I said, feeling is present with each moment of experience, each moment of consciousness. So, in the Buddha's teaching, feeling is only used for this affective quality of the experience. It's not used in the more general sense as we have it like, I feel happy or I feel sad, today I feel great, today I feel lousy, and so on. So this is the most basic uh, division of feelings. Sometimes feeling is divided into five groups, uh, depending on whether it arises based on a physical or mental object. 
And so this fivefold division is like an experience based on the body. Then there is pleasure, pleasant feeling, or pain, unpleasant feeling. Regarding experiences in the mind, we have joy, it's a pleasant feeling, and displeasure, unpleasant feeling. And for the kind of neutral feeling, this is uh, the same as regards to experiences in body and mind, and we can call it equanimity. So even we have physical or mental experiences that form the basis for feelings to arise, but feeling, Vedana, is always a mental experience. It's always a mental state. It's feeling, Vedana, uh, this mental factor, which fully and directly experiences the object. Other mental factors do not directly uh, experience the object in the same way as Vedana feeling does. So to explain this, like feeling, Vedana is compared to a king who enjoys the meal as much as he likes. Other mental factors are like the cook who prepares the meal and only samples a little bit of the food he or she prepares. So each experience is accompanied by one of these three feelings. A pleasant or an unpleasant feeling is quite easy to recognize. Neutral feelings are a bit more difficult uh, to perceive. From our own experience, we know that very often we react with desire, wanting, craving, attachment, or holding on to pleasant feelings. When these pleasant feelings arise, we do not want them uh, let go. We hold on to them. We want to make them last, if it were possible, forever. So we want to experience this pleasant aspect of the experience as much as possible, as long as possible. And when a pleasant feeling disappears, then the mind immediately wants more. It craves for yet another pleasant feeling. And to unpleasant feelings, very often we react with aversion, with anger, real ill will, uh, suppression, or hatred, because we assume it's the self or the I which experiences this displeasure. 
and so because it's unpleasant or painful, we want to make it disappear. We don't want to experience it. We don't hold on to it, but we want it to go away as quickly as possible. And we also try to avoid it from arising in the future. And when there is a neutral feeling, one that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, then just because it's not attractive and not repulsive, the mind stays kind of indifferent towards it, or it simply doesn't care about this neutral feeling. So it's especially the pleasant and unpleasant feelings that we have to be careful of. Actually, all we would like would be only to have pleasant feelings and uh, get completely rid of the unpleasant ones. That's, if it were possible, we only would like to experience nice and pleasurable uh, experiences or objects. Like the eye wants to be happy. The eye wants to see nice uh, visible things. The eye wants to hear nice sounds. The eye wants to smell nice fragrances. The eye wants to taste delicious tastes. And the eye wants to experience uh, pleasant, tangible objects. And so, whenever there is an object or a situation where a pleasant feeling arises, then the mind immediately grasps at it. It clings to it. The mind gets completely attached to it. And this happens usually very, very quickly. And normally, we are not even aware of this. And because we are not aware of it, that's why we, most of the people, get into this frenzy uh, and engage in activities to make this pleasurable feeling make last, make it last long, or then to produce it another time. And with the unpleasant feelings, unpleasant experiences, it's the opposite. The mind usually immediately reacts with aversion or ill will, with repulsion. And then this is usually followed by immediate actions to get rid of this unpleasant uh, object. So, being caught up in our habitual reactions, we frantically try to get only the pleasant experiences and avoid the unpleasant ones. Because 
we had never a closer look at these feelings, we have failed to understand them in their true nature. So we take these feelings for something that they are actually not. We take these feelings to be me, or I, or mine. Somehow we see them as an integral part of ourselves. Through the practice of Vipassana meditation, we can go beyond the concept of feeling and we can come to discover what actually exists when this label is dropped. So when we finally take our time and carefully look at these feelings, then we come to realize that they too are fleeting experiences, that they are not permanent or solidly existing entities. So for example, a pleasant feeling that arises is maybe just waves of pleasantness being experienced in the body. And these waves of pleasantness, they come and they go and another one comes and goes. And later on we came to see more clearly that these feelings are actually just momentary uh, happenings of pleasantness arising and disappearing, followed by another momentary arising of pleasantness arising and disappearing. And in the same way, it can be experienced with unpleasant feelings. For example, when observing a pain, painful sensation in the knee. So then, as we look at this pain, as we are aware of that unpleasantness, we can see changes within this unpleasantness. And later on, when concentration is deeper and mindfulness becomes very sharp, and again we can come to see that this unpleasantness is actually quite momentary. Little moments of unpleasantness arising and uh, passing away. The next one coming up and disappearing again. And with very sharp and keen mindfulness, it can be seen as like little bubbles uh, coming and immediately uh, bursting, coming up and then immediately bursting. So then it's like uh, a pot of boiling water, a pot of water that is near to the boiling point, when all these uh, little bubbles uh, come to the surface and immediately uh, burst. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, feeling 
is further divided into worldly and unworldly feelings. So there we have worldly pleasant feelings, worldly unpleasant feelings, and worldly neutral feelings. And then unworldly pleasant feelings, unworldly unpleasant feelings, and unworldly neutral feelings. And the Buddha explained that the worldly types of feelings are those feelings that arise based on the household life. So in one of the suttas, the Buddha explained that the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, and mental objects experienced by a householder, person living the household life, uh, lead to worldly feelings. And this can be either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the so-called unworldly feelings are those feelings that arise based on renunciation. The Buddha explained when a person, a meditator, comes to understand and see the impermanence or fading away of a given object, then this leads to unworldly feelings. And again, this can be either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So I find this a very interesting point. As we know, to see and understand the impermanent nature of phenomena is a vital, vital point in Vipassana meditation. So when we actually can see the impermanent nature of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible and mental objects, it's quite natural that joy and happiness arises in the mind of the meditator. And so this happiness or joy, this amounts to an unworldly pleasant feeling. So this seems quite logic. But now, how can an unworldly unpleasant feeling arise in regard to such a good experience. And so the Buddha explains that although one sees and understands the impermanence of objects, um, although one understands that, one generates a longing for supreme liberation. One generates a desire to become enlightened. And so, based on that longing for liberation and not having attained it yet, then sadness or frustration or grief will arise. And so, this sadness, frustration or grief, this amounts to an unworldly, 
unpleasant feeling. Now the unworldly neutral feeling arises when there is equanimity regarding the impermanence of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles or mental objects. The next aggregate is the aggregate of perception and this is called Sanya Kanda in Pali. It's perception that identifies an object. It's this Sanya which recognizes an object. Feeling only knows the pleasant, unpleasant or neutral effective quality of an object. It is perception, this mental factor of perception, that identifies an object as this or that. And this um, recognition of an object is always built on previous experiences. So it's perception that identifies the main characteristics of an object and then it compares them to previous experiences of a similar type. And then as a result of that the concept of house or tree or person comes up. So it's based on perception that we formulate a concept or an idea about a certain object. So depending on our accumulated experiences and also depending on the present state of mind, a certain object can be perceived by two persons as two different objects. I will give you an example. At one time I went on a pilgrimage to Lower Burma and I went with a friend of mine and we had been meditating for about four or five months and so keeping noble silence we didn't talk. But now, coming out of retreat and going on this pilgrimage with the Burmese family, there was lots to talk about. And the two of us were sitting in front of this pickup car next to the driver and the Burmese family. They were all packed in the back of the car. And so, as we were talking to each other, all of a, friend, all of a sudden, my friend goes, Ha! Ah, did you see this black snake on the road? And I said, What black snake? What I saw was a, a piece of black torn rubber. So there we were. We had seen the same thing, but we perceived this black thing as two completely different things. So, 
who of us was right? We don't know. <laughs> or another example of perception. Like it was in the early 70s, some 30 years ago, that the very first car arrived in the valley of Zanskar. Zanskar is a very, very remote valley in Ladakh, in the Indian Himalayas. And people had been living there for many, many centuries. And to go to different places and to transport uh, things, they had animals. They had yaks, horses, and donkeys. So they could ride a yak or ride a horse when they needed to go somewhere else. Or if they had to transport things, they could load these uh, things on the back of a yak, a horse, or a donkey. So for them, a means of transport were these animals. And so then that day, when the first car, a jeep, arrived in the Zanskar Valley, people were amazed to see this strange uh, thing coming. And when it stopped, people came down and they unloaded a lot of baggage. So a means of transport, and for the Zanskari people, um, that must have been an animal was a bit a strange-looking beast, but definitely means of transport, an animal. And so very quickly they went and cut some fresh grass and put it in front of this strange beast. So because they had never seen a car seeing this certain shape and form, they could not compare it to anything uh, similar or the closest thing what they could compare it was a means of transport. And so they took that for an animal. But for them it was not recognized as car. They simply did not have this concept, this label of car. Or another example, um, three years ago a friend of mine invited me to come along to a retreat with a Tibetan Rinpoche. retreat was uh, near New York and so we went there, did the registration and then went to the meditation hall to uh, choose a seat, a mat. And the first two rows uh, were already taken. And so we got the seat a bit um, behind. But then later on, uh, before, just before uh, the teaching uh, started, a Tibetan woman attending that retreat saw me, a nun sitting back there, and so she offered me her mat 
in the first row. So I moved up into the first row. And the mat beside me uh, was not yet occupied. There was no person there, but it had a sheet of paper there and a name was written on it. And so I read it and it said, Richard. That's how I read it in German. Richard. Okay, another person will come to this retreat. He didn't show up for the first day, but then on the second day, this person called Richard uh, came. A middle-aged man wearing jeans, a shirt, gray hair. I thought, ah, okay, that's Richard. I thought, hmm, it <coughs> looks like a middle-class person, middle-aged. I thought, good on you to come on a meditation retreat. But after that, for the rest of the retreat, I did not pay any further attention to him. And actually, he left one day earlier before the retreat was finished. And so after the retreat, my friend asked me, do you know this person who was sitting right next to you, who it was? And I said, no, I just saw the sign. His name was Richard, Richard. And he said, you know, it was Richard Gere. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, oh, I had heard about him famous actor, and also heard that he was a Buddhist practitioner in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, that he was actually quite a dedicated and serious practitioner, also a friend of the Dalai Lama. I had read a few things, like in Buddhist magazines, some times one can read, yeah, Richard Gere was there and there. And I had even seen a few pictures of him. But I had never really any interest to know more about it or never looked closer at these pictures. And so having this man sitting next to me, for me it was just a very ordinary, simple, middle-aged man. (laughs) I think... You know, for probably the rest of the participants in this retreat, they probably all knew that this was Richard Gere, but only the Swiss nun, she had no idea uh, whom to next she was sitting. I think many people would have been very excited and proud uh, to sit there. But to me, you know, yeah, no interest, nothing. The mind was not affected at all. And only after my friend had told me, I realized that if she had told me earlier, maybe at the beginning, uh, at the end of the second day when he had arrived, then for the rest of the retreat, probably through the corners of my eyes, I would have sort of looked, how does he sit? Can he sit straight, upright? Is he nodding? But for him, it must have been probably quite a relief 
to have this discreet uh, person sitting next to him, not kind of bothering him or making a big fuss. Well, she didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, no concept Richard Gere. As far as my mind would go, middle-aged person, man, that was all. So then another aggregate is the aggregate of mental formations. And this is called Sankara Kanda. As I said, besides feeling and perception, all the other um, mental factors are included in this aggregate. And we can describe it as the conditioned response to the object of experience. So whereas feeling and perception arise with each moment of consciousness, most of the mental factors that belong to this aggregate arise only dependent on the object or the situation and dependent on the state of mind uh, of the person. So for example, let's say somebody brings a tiramisu for a dessert here. And so if you belong to those who really like a tiramisu, then seeing this dessert will immediately be accompanied by wanting or craving. And so wanting or craving is one of the mental factors that can arise together with consciousness. And so wanting, craving, greed, this belongs to the aggregate of mental formations. Or Another example, if your neighbor is just coming home with a new car and it is exactly the same car that you would actually like uh, to have it, then seeing the neighbor with this new car um, can be accompanied by jealousy. Again, jealousy is one of the mental factors and it can arise together uh, with consciousness. It belongs to this aggregate of mental formations. So depending on the mental formation or mental factor that uh, occurs with a given moment of consciousness, then the mind is colored with greed, or jealousy, or aversion, or joy, or any other mental state. And we also know that the world looks different, whether we look at it with a calm and peaceful mind, or whether we look at it through a restless and angry mind. And so, 
in our meditation practice, as we observe these different reactions, as we observe anger arising, jealousy arising, frustration arising, we see that there are also entities that are not permanent. At one stage, they will disappear again. They will vanish. It's actually very good that they arise and disappear. Because imagine, once you would get angry, if that anger would stay with you for the rest of your life, wouldn't very, wouldn't be very good. And the last of these five aggregates is the aggregate of consciousness. This is called Vijnana Kanda in Pali. Consciousness, Chitta, has the characteristic of knowing an object or simply cognizing an object. So consciousness, citta, just knows there is an object there. It knows it's a visible object or it knows it's a sound or it knows it's a smell, but it doesn't uh, know more than that. So in order to know what kind of visible object it is, that is the work of perception, sanya. As I said, perception recognizes what this visible form is. Consciousness only knows there is a visible form. But then it needs perception to do its work to finally come to the conclusion this is a lamp or a chair. And consciousness itself, citta, is clear and uh, pure, unobstructed. And also consciousness does not arise on its own, but it only arises when its necessary conditions are present. So the conditions that are necessary for consciousness to arise are an object and a sense base and the contact between them. So that means when a visible object hits the eye, the physical eye organ, then eye consciousness will arise. When a sound hits the ear, the physical ear, then ear consciousness arises. When a smell comes in contact with the nose, then nose consciousness arises. When a taste comes in contact with the tongue, then tongue consciousness arises. When our body uh, comes in contact with some object, then body consciousness arises. And finally, 
when a thought um, arises and comes in contact with the mind door, then mind consciousness arises. So consciousness always arises depending on one of the six sense doors and their corresponding objects. So we do not only have one kind of consciousness, but actually it's six kinds of consciousness related to the six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. So if there is a contact between an object and the corresponding sense door, then consciousness will arise. And when the contact no longer exists, when that contact ceases, then that consciousness will also cease. When we are mindful of what enters through the six sense doors, when we perceive sounds, sights, smells, tastes, and so on, we come to see that these different kinds of consciousness are, are not permanent. So only when we see something is there eye consciousness. Only when there is a sound hitting the ear does hearing consciousness arise. And likewise with the other kinds of consciousness. So through experience we can come to see that this uh, consciousness, arisings of consciousness are uh, dependent and also momentary happenings. But as I said, consciousness never arises by itself. It's always accompanied by a number of mental factors. I mentioned feeling and perception arising with each moment of consciousness. And there are five more mental factors that are present with each moment of consciousness. And they are contact, volition, one-pointedness, the mental life faculty, and attention. So these seven mental factors are always uh, present with each moment of consciousness. And then other mental factors, such as jealousy, or joy, happiness, greed, and so on, they arise uh, dependent on the object and dependent on the present mental state. Consciousness citta is said to be clear, unobstructed, or uh, transparent like water. So clear, transparent water can be mixed with anything, but 
when it's mixed with something, then it's not clear and transparent any longer. So if one puts red dye into clear water, then the water becomes red. If we put green dye into clear water, then the water becomes green. If we put brown dye into the water, then the water becomes brown. And likewise, it happens with consciousness. So if consciousness, which is pure and clean, is accompanied by the mental factor of anger, then the mind consciousness will be colored by this anger. And so we speak of an angry mind. If consciousness is accompanied by the mental factor of metta, loving kindness, then we speak of a, a mind infused with loving kindness. Or if consciousness is, is accompanied by the mental factor of sloth and torpor, then it becomes a dull and sleepy mind. Or if consciousness is accompanied by the mental factor of mindfulness, then it becomes a mindful mind. In worldlings, beings who have not yet attained to um, any stage of enlightenment, the pure mind is basically defiled by thoughts of greed, hatred and delusion. And so these are the three poisons which cause the constant uh, misery troubles and dissatisfaction in a people's life. And it's basically on uh, based on ignorance or delusion that beings take the eye for the entity that sees, hears, smells, tastes, touches, or thinks. People assume that behind these uh, acts of seeing, hearing, and so on, there must be some entity which does the seeing, hearing, and so on. So there must be an I or a self, or a me that uh, does the seeing, hearing, etc. But the Buddha said that there is no such thing as an independently existing I or self which sees or hears. But what actually exists is simply the five aggregates. These aggregates of materiality, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. 
So these five aggregates are the building blocks of what we call a being or a person. And as we have seen, all of these five aggregates have no solid substance. They have no permanent core. All of these five aggregates are constantly changing. They are in a constant flux from moment to moment. So this play of the five aggregates is all that exists. The Buddha used a simile for each of these five aggregates to show its insubstantial nature. So the aggregate of materiality is compared to foam. If we have foam and touch it, well, it immediately dissolves. We have nothing left in our hand. And so the Buddha said, materiality is not the self. Where materiality the self, it would not lead to affliction. So if materiality, matter, our body for example, was the self or endowed with the self, then we would not allow that this body would lead to affliction, that it would give us pain or suffering. Then the simile used for feeling, the aggregate of feeling, is bubbles. Like the bubbles coming up in a pot of water which is near the boiling point. These bubbles come up and as soon as they reach the surface of the water, they just burst. Or when it's raining and drops of rain fall into a pond, the raindrops hit the surface of the water, form a little bubble, but in the next moment uh, it's gone. It's disappeared. So there is no solid substance to be found in a bubble. And so the Buddha also said of feeling, feeling is not the self. Where feeling the self, it would not lead to affliction. Then, next the Buddha said that perception is like a mirage. A person walking in this desert, all of a sudden seeing uh, water in the distance, or trees. But coming nearer, there is no water, there is no tree. It's only been a mirage, an empty uh, phenomena, no solid substance. And the Buddha said, perception is not the self. Were perception the self, it would not lead to affliction. Then the mental formations are compared to the trunk of a banana tree. For people who have never seen a banana tree, it might be a bit difficult to understand 
why this stimulant is used. We also can say it's like an onion, like the trunk of a banana tree as an onion are uh, made up of different layers. So if you peel an onion and then you take off one layer and you come to the next one and you take that one off and you come to the next layer and so on and you don't find any solid core and also the trunk of a banana tree is just different layers. There is no hardwood to be found inside there. And so the Buddha said, mental formations are not the self. Were mental formations the self, they would not lead to affliction. And lastly, the Buddha said, consciousness is like a magician who conjures all uh, different kinds of experiences. So again here, no solid core can be found in consciousness. And so the Buddha said, consciousness is not the self. Were consciousness the self, it would not lead to affliction. But not understanding um, these aggregates, people mistake these aggregates for this and that and call them man or woman, kid or grandma. And so perceiving an object in this way, then we react to it on the basis of our habits, of our predispositions and also on the basis of our temporary moods. Most of the time we feel attraction to pleasant uh, objects or repulsion towards unpleasant objects. However, the object is neither attractive uh, nor repulsive. It's neither good nor bad. That's the judgment of the mind. A certain kind of food may be very delicious for one person. To another person it might taste disgusting. Most of the Burmese people, they love their ngapi, which is kind of a fish paste. It's part of every feast. For me, however, uh, it stinks terribly. <laughs> so we all have grown up in a certain culture and we all have developed our habits, our likes and dislikes, and also uh, in regard to food. And Based on these likes and dislikes, we then build up an identity such as I like to drink coffee or I am a coffee drinker or I can't eat cabbage because it creates a lot of wind or I am a vegetarian. But even 
our likes and dislikes can change if only we allow them to change. But if we firmly hold on to the image or identity that we have made of ourselves, then the changing nature of things becomes more difficult to perceive. And also to acknowledge change and impermanence can actually be quite frightening. We place our need for security in stability. We don't want things or situations to change, or at least um, not too quickly. Our sense of I or self, self likes a firm and solid base. And so we rather change out the conditions than admitting that changes are happening place in ourselves. And so the way people deal with getting older is a very simple example. Gray hairs are dyed. Wrinkles are covered with thick layers of makeup. And missing teeth are uh, replaced and those who can afford it resort to a facelift. And of course there are many more uh, ways to uh, fix our outer appearance and pretend we are not getting older. If we try to open up to the changes that take place within, then we can become the witness of a unique and extremely fascinating play, namely the play of the aggregates. This is like looking into a kaleidoscope which presents ever new pictures, colors and shapes as one turn slowly turns it around. When I was a kid I just loved to look into my kaleidoscope and slowly turn it and a new form and shape constellation would come up and then a new one and a new one and sometimes I had an extremely nice one and I thought, ah yes, I want to keep this or I want to show it to my mum and so I wanted to keep it, go to my mum but the slightest uh, shaking of it would make it change and then as much as I tried to get that same uh, constellation again, I never got it back. It had gone. And so, this is how our life is. Uncountable variations of the five aggregates in their interplay. And this can be observed in meditation and be fully realized when concentration is deep and our mindfulness uh, keen and sharp. And so then the I, the self, gets dissolved and all that is left are the five aggregates. And this is right understanding and this leads to the cessation of all suffering.
So may all of you, by rightly understanding these five aggregates, be freed from all forms of suffering.